Welcome to Healthy Perspectives Podcast with Jeremiah, where we provide clinical perspectives on current social and cultural issues. And don't forget, you can subscribe at Podbean, Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe at any or all of them. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Getter, Twitter, and many other social media sites. Or you can email us at healthy perspectives with an S at protonmail.com. So we're going to get after here part two, part two of love. Uh, remember again, I'm going to preface, please understand this will most likely be uh, at least somewhat of a failed endeavor, but I'm giving it a shot anyway. The reason I say that is because the topic of love is so complex, so incredibly complex that no matter what I do, I'm not going to do it justice. And yet I still feel compelled to give it a shot because it's such a critical component to everything that I do as a therapist. You know, I talk about empathy. If you've listened to me for long, I've talked about empathy as uh, you know, a therapeutic term for love, uh, the idea of trying to see the world as as though I am someone else, but without taking on their emotion, um, because emotions, as we know, and we're going to learn a little bit more again today, can can distort things, uh, both for the better or for the worse, and uh, and so today we're going to talk specifically not just about feelings, but about thoughts. We're going to take those two what often people view as polar opposites, the thought and the feeling. Because within each of us, one of those two is probably predominant, meaning it leads us or guides us more so than the other. Uh, and that's that's why we're going to get after them together uh, at the same time so that those of you who are predominantly feeling people can hopefully find a nugget or two. And those of you who are predominantly thought people can hopefully find a nugget or two. My hope is that you find a nugget or two that's in the opposite of your default. So if you default to the thought process, my hope is that you catch some things in the feeling process. Because what we do know is that a balanced thought and or head and heart, but thought and feeling uh, allows us to be more accurate in our assessment of the world around us. And accuracy of the world around us allows us to interact with it in ways that is uh, potentially more helpful, uh, not just for ourselves, but for others. And it definitely leads to a more balanced approach to life in general, uh, which when we scale things like happiness quotients and stuff like that, uh, we scale higher. So uh, all around good thing. All right, let's get after it because this is going to be fun. There's there's two different polarizing, often viewed as polarizing uh, things. Let's knock out the feeling one first. So for those of you who are thought people, this may challenge you. Uh, we're going to just go over some basic concepts. Um, so if you're a feeling person, you've probably heard these before and you've probably latched onto them. Um, but hang in there. Let's see what happens. Paraverbal uh, is some of you have heard me talk about paraverbal communication in the past, but paraverbal is a great way to describe the feeling of love. I'll give you an example. I'm going to say the same three words using different tone, volume, and cadence. Tone, volume, and cadence is the those are the components of paraverbal communication. So 
tone, volume, and cadence. That's the, the tone at which I speak, the volume, whether high or low, right? And that also includes uh, frequency, right? You know, the difference between male and female is, is often very significant. And then the cadence, the speed. So I'm going to manipulate the tone, volume, and cadence of the three words, I love you. Okay, those are the three words I'm going to use. I'm going to change tone, volume, and cadence. And your job on your end as a listener is to decide in your heart if they feel different. Okay, here we go. Take number one. I love you. Take number two. I love you. Take number three. I love you. Take number four. I love you. Take number five. I love you. I used the same three words in five different ways. And if you go back and you listen to those again, you're going to probably react differently to each one internally. If you're being honest with yourself, that paraverbal does affect feeling. Okay. Paraverbal affects the feeling. So the way in which we project love into the world affects the way the world responds to our uh, interaction. And the same is true when we receive love. The way in which we opt to hear both the paraverbal, but also the other things, right? The nonverbals, uh, the actual words do matter. You know, so we, we start looking at all these different components and they affect our feeling. Feeling, as we go down this path, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch over to how it connects to us individually. This is one of those things that makes love so complicated to, to teach but also to learn, is that it's super personal. It is based on your history. It transports you back in time, or it can transport you forward, which I'll get into those a little bit more. Um, the, the, I'll get into the forward one here in just a minute, but let's, let's take a look real quick at the back. If somebody walks by you, and they're wearing a cologne or a perfume that your boyfriend or your girlfriend wore when you were in high school. You are going to have a feeling that's going to come on. Uh, you know, our, our, our sense of smell is one of those longer lasting senses. It just ingrains itself in the memory in a, in a very unique way. And so if you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend in high school or even college, right? Or, or maybe, uh, you know, your first boyfriend or girlfriend, and you get a whiff of something that smells like them, you are going to have a reaction because that smell transports you back in time. It takes you back to a memory that you had. Now that I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, you know, whether that's a good or bad thing, but there are going to be things like smells or sounds or, um, you know, any of those senses, right, that will transport you back in time. 
And that's a big deal when we think about that because it will raise up feelings, sometimes old feelings that we maybe want or maybe we don't want. And we can actually get stuck at times striving toward a feeling that we once had. Well, it will never be as strong as it was the very first time by design. The first time, and I'm not talking about love will never be as strong as the first time, but a feeling, an initial feeling, it creates an initial engram, right? An engram is that initial memory. And that's always going to be the strongest of them all. All right. Well, it also connects us to the future. I told you I'd get to this in a minute and here we are. As we look forward, there's really two categories that tend to come to the surface. One is fear and one is hopefulness. When we're looking at love and we're looking at fear, looking forward, our fear is often of loneliness or abandonment, separation, stuff like that. Obviously, that can be a very intense emotion. Our hopefulness is often a sense of belonging and unity and family, group, something like that, tribe. And that belonging can be a very intense emotion as well. In that particular example, as we look forward, sometimes we envision ourselves holding the hand of a spouse, a, a partner in life walking across the street. So when we see a really old couple walking across the street, we have this euphoric sense of hopefulness, not just for them, but for our own possible future. Well, that also can be really intense as that hopefulness wanes or even some, in some cases, um, you know, it dies. An example of that might be, you know, you get into your 60s and you haven't gotten married. Well, that hope fades. Now, it doesn't have to. Some people at 60, you know, really kick it off and man, they, they have a great relationship between then and the end of their days. But for a lot of people, that hopelessness or that fear of loneliness or abandonment can creep in slowly over time. The idea of giving our lives to something that is not as meaningful as maybe a partner might be. Like these are things that people think about all the time. Why? Because they feel these things. They feel fear. They feel hopefulness. And so it goes. At its best, a feeling of love can create an overwhelming joy. Overwhelming, right? The idea that it's bubbling over, that love bucket is filled and flowing everywhere. Well, the good part about that is when your love bucket is full, when you are you know, feeling like the people around you are accepting you for who you are and loving you as best they know how, not perfect, but as best they know how. The beauty of that is that it overflows into other emotions and it actually calms the other emotions down. For instance, your anxiety 
subsides when you feel an overwhelming sense of belonging and love. It does. Your anxiety will will diminish. It may not disappear. We need some anxiety or we wouldn't do anything. We'd be apathetic. Um, But the opposite, if our love bucket is empty, all of the other emotions are more intense. And the worst case scenario, anger sits right by the surface. Angry people, by way of how emotions work, are people who do not feel loved or the capacity to love. They're going to typically be people um, who, who get stuck in the thought part of it because they don't have the feeling part of it down yet. And these are people who I would highly recommend uh, go see a therapist and start getting in connection with the heart. These are people who have overly um, flopped their, their process to the thought process, and they are not engaging with the emotional process. Both of them are very important. All right, let's move on to the thought. The thought when it comes to love, well, let's start with the, the basic reality. Love is abstract. So when we look at the way the brain functions, the idea of abstract means that it isn't even begun to underst- be understood until we have puberty. When the left and the right hemisphere begin to merge through the corpus callosum, we develop uh, which, by the way, does happen typically right around puberty for, for people. Uh, that abstract thinking becomes part of the process. So until then, we tend to develop the behavioral attributes, but not the understanding of emotional attributes. We see, you know, mom and dad, um, if, if we have mom and dad, uh, what we see is mom and dad. Uh, you know, providing for us. And we say, hmm, well, I needed that. They provided it. That's, that's a form of love. Okay, we see mom and dad holding each other's hands and we go, hmm, that must be love. We see them kiss. Hmm, that must be love. Um, we see them argue, but then make up. That must be love, right? We see these behaviors. And even though there's abstract stuff happening, we tend to, before puberty, Just look at those behaviors, okay? Moving on to the next one, which is why this this is, when we think about love from an early phase, we're looking at preconceived ideas or biases. They're preconceived ideas and biases because we go by what we see happening in front of us. Does that make sense? I hope that's making sense. That is all based on experience. So what happens in a world in which there isn't much love visible in their world? Ooh, they, they have less preconceived ideas and biases, but they also don't recognize it when it's happening because they don't see it typically in their environment. And so they that kind of uh, situation would have to find 
outside sources. I, I often talk about how when I was growing up, I, I had a, a single mom and a brother. And there was love in the home that was, that was there to the best of their ability, right? My brother was only a couple years older and often in the, you know, with siblings, the, what we look at as, as love is, yeah, no, we fought a ton, but that's because we liked each other and hated each other, right? <laughs> Which, you know, is a form of love, right? That brotherly love. But I also had this other family, uh, my best friend growing up, uh, his name was Matt. And his family took me in and taught me more about familial love than I got from my family early on. Now, I did have extended family. I had a grandfather, a grandmother, uh, an uncle. I, I mean, I had some people around me, but they weren't daily interacting with me. And so I turned to my best friend's family as the example. And I watched and I listened and I learned by by observing them. So my early biases were based on not even my own family, but a family that I spent pretty much every day with. And that was my preconceived idea of love. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because what we do from there is we either seek what we see or we seek what we don't see. So we either learn to love by being loved or we learn to love by the absence of love. That means there's, there's no scenario in which hope should totally die off. Now, I know that people struggle with hope sometimes. I'm not suggesting that that's not real. But if we don't have love in front of us, then we look for the thing that we don't have in our environment. That's good and all, as long as what comes into our environment is good and healthy. What happens if I, let's say in my scenario, if I didn't have that family, my surrogate family, my other family, I would have still sought something that was not present in my environment. And as a young man, um, growing up as a teenager, there is a very good chance that I would have gone into situations where I would not have been a faithful boyfriend because I wouldn't have seen that. And I could have very easily attributed sexuality to love. Some of you out there right now are probably going, oh, that's what happened to me. If that happened to you, it's something to take a look at. Your preconceived, your early biases were that, hey, intimacy is what makes love. That's not true. It's a part of love. But the thought has to be there too. It can't just be that one behavior. It has to be a feeling, not just the one behavior. All right. What we're essentially what I'm, I'm getting to here with the thought is uh, this is more or less cognitive behavioral therapy. The idea that behaviors determine thoughts and then thoughts determine behaviors. And there's this uh, consistent circular motion. So you can change the behavior to get a different thought, or you can change the thought to get a different behavior. Another thing about thoughts we should explore for a moment is how people who are dominant into the thought part of love 
tend toward cost-benefit analysis of a relationship. The cost-benefit analysis of a relationship is very much a narcissistic view. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who develops this is narcissistic, but it doesn't attribute those, um, those other qualities, those feeling qualities, which are supposed to be part of love. So be really careful. If you're the type of person who is saying it's a 50-50, you're the type of person who is in the thought realm more so than the feeling realm. Maybe it's because you're scared of the feeling. Maybe it's because you don't understand the feeling. Uh, Maybe it's because you've been harmed in the feeling category. But at the end of the day, if you're that type of a person, you probably need to get somebody to talk to because doing a cost-benefit analysis in a relationship, it's not a 50-50. It's a 100-100. It always has been if there is love. Because a person who loves another person is always willing to give more than the other person. But then there's also this reciprocating, I'm also willing to receive more when I need more. It's not about I'm taking right now. It's about there, the compromise comes over time by both of us giving 100-100, right? When I have a bad day and I don't have 100 to give, but I've only got 50 and you're giving 100, but your 100 is only a 90, we're still good to go. I mean, you do the math there. We're at a, what, a 140? We're at 140 and neither one of us were giving 100. Because we were both committed to giving our hundred, which means our best for that day. If we go 50-50 and all of a sudden you see that I can only give 40. And now all of a sudden you're going, well, if you're only giving 40, I'm only giving 40. Now we're at 80. We're in trouble. That's why it's 100-100. You got to be really careful with that cost-benefit analysis. When we mix the feeling and the thought world the scale will tip in one direction or the other. So when we are balancing them as best we can, uh, it's going to tip toward the one that is our dominant. That's fine. I'm not asking for perfection in myself or in you, but I'm asking you to pay attention to the tip, to that scale tip. When it tips to emotion, it means there's going to be inaccuracy. When it tips toward the thought and negates some of the emotion, there's going to be inaccuracy. So be careful about the tip. Now, one of the things that I teach, and this is what I'm going to leave you with. This is going to be my last, hopefully this is a nugget, you can something you can use. What I teach when we have a thought or a feeling imbalance is scale them separately. What are you thinking right now should be the emotion? What are you thinking should be the emotional scale? So that's what we do with the thought person. When we have a feeling person, I do it exactly the same, just the other way. What do you feel like should you should be thinking? And what do you feel like the thinking scale would be? So I'll give you an example of, of scaling it. If 
I am, uh, you know, for example, I'm going to break it down. This is not going to be love, but I'm going to, hopefully this will be a good example. You're driving along and somebody almost crashes into you. In that moment, you have a feeling and you have a thought. One of those is going to raise to being the dominant feeling or the dominant thought. It's going to dominate the other. When we think about it, if we avoided the accident, we might think, wow, that was really close. That feeling should have been about an eight because that was really intense. But the feeling was a 10. You got scared. So you scaled the feeling at a 10. The truth, deal with it at nine, right? Right in between. Now, that sometimes brings us down enough, just enough, so that we don't get angry and go to be aggressive. Now, that doesn't always work. Um, I, you know, I have people coming to me and they'll say, you know, like, I felt like, you know, that was a, uh, a, a, an eight or a nine. But when I think about it, it was probably more like a four. Well, treat it like a five or a six. You're going to be more balanced in your approach. You're acknowledging the emotion and you're acknowledging the thought. You're giving them both a little bit of credit and you manage it somewhere in between. You tend to be more balanced in your approach and you'll probably create a better environment around you. Hopefully that was clear enough. It's, it's a little bit more challenging to do when I'm not in session and somebody's just given me a great example. So uh, I hope that made sense. If it didn't, please send me a note. I really want you to get this. This is something that I use routinely in the therapeutic environment. Thank you so much for listening have a great day. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please take a look at our website at www.healthyperspectives with a dash in between the healthy and the perspectives. Make sure there's an S at the end.com. So again, www.healthy-perspectives with an S.com.